welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I am Colin Rice, Executive Committee Member of the Council and partner at PwC. Uh, I have some esteemed guests with us today. Council Members Dr. Heide Donegan, partner at Denton's Kensington Swan, Martin Thompson, partner at DLA Piper, and Sylvanus Schioni, partner at Minterellison. The government recently updated the Overseas Investment Rules, and in this podcast, we're looking to explain these changes and discuss possible impacts on New Zealand investment environment. Um, Martin, coming to you first, how was inbound investment from China been been tracking, kind of, and in a broader scheme, and then within COVID, what's been the uh, the impact of that? Colin, I think the reality is that with the disruption of COVID-19 around the world, M&A activity globally has slowed, and that's in an environment also where outbound investment from China has been slowing for some time, in part because of regulatory changes in China, making it harder for capital to be invested outside of China. Saying that, that's following an environment where there's been significant increase in investment from China over the last sort of five to ten years. China now, if you take into account also investment from Hong Kong, the reality is a lot of investment flows from China through Hong Kong into New Zealand. Hong Kong and China are now our second largest source of foreign direct investment into New Zealand, and you know that's a product of strong investment from China over particularly the last five years in a range of sectors and in a number of regions across uh, New Zealand. So with the, the disruption from COVID, what we've seen is, is, is an even slowing of uh, investment from China, but there's actually a sort of renewed interest from around the world in New Zealand. I think New Zealand's performance in dealing with the COVID disruption has translated into real interest in New Zealand as an investment destination. So we're seeing strong interest from other countries, but not so much from China. I mean, certainly we saw a direct and dramatic impact when COVID struck that you know, deals just stopped as everyone couldn't deal with the, uh, couldn't deal with the uncertainty. But uh, what we hear from our firm in China in terms of our total outbound investment out of China, just to give context in the New Zealand story, is they've seen a significant drop off in that, you know, kind of anecdotally yeah. half the volumes that, uh, that they were, were seen, seen previously. Yeah, I suspect the inbound investment from China into New Zealand is even stronger. It's less than half. I mean, I think it's dropped off quite quite a lot. It's distinctly challenging if you're a, particularly a Chinese corporate um, without a strong presence in New Zealand trying to get a, a deal completed here. You want to have people on the ground. And while that's not possible, it's possible in other countries, right? But it's not possible in New Zealand context, and that's a, a specific challenge for us. Yes. I think another feature of the investment that we've seen is that there has been less by private individuals and more by large corporates. And that's, you know, an example being Yili's acquisition of Westland. You know, that tends to be a feature more of the investment coming from China, larger and by larger corporates. I think that's great in terms of, of context. Uh, Heide, maybe if I can come to you. Uh, and just thinking about the, the, the changes, the core reason they're here today is to talk about those changes to the OIA. Maybe if you could... For the non-legal listeners to the podcast, try to give us a bit of understanding of of what do those recent announcements and changes really look like. Sure, Colin. With the new changes, which came into effect on the 16th of June this year, following the COVID impact, the government has passed a law to make the case that overseas investment 
transaction that do not require consent currently under the Act will need to be notified to the OIO where the transaction involves an acquisition of more than 25% of the assets, securities or ownership or control interest in a New Zealand business or an increase in the overseas person's existing more than 25% ownership or controlled interest in a New Zealand business to more than 50%, 75% or 100%. So this will capture all direct acquisitions of shares and business assets, unless obviously the establishment of the entry into leases by overseas persons. So the way gene will continue to be reviewed every 90 days. So with the view that when the economic um, impact of COVID-19 wears out, then this notification regime will stop. So do I think about this as being a significantly broader uh, reach of, oh, yes, the, uh, of the Act, uh, effectively covering pretty much any meaningful investment kind of into New Zealand's being uh, will now be covered. But it will be subject to, to review to see how, how that's operating. So I suppose that's a, a positive in itself that there is a, a, a review process that if it's, it's not working, there is a possibility of, of uh, amendment. Is that how I understand it? That's right. So every 90 days, the OIO will be reviewing or the minister will be reviewing the uh, situation in terms of, you know, how many notifications they review, what will be the outcome of the review. Now with this, I would like to talk about a test that they have introduced. Um, this test is called the National Interest Test. What the minister and the OIO will be looking at when they're assessing the notifications from the foreign investors is um, whether the foreign investment will actually pose any material or national interest which may affect New Zealand or Mm. may pose material risks to New Zealand's um, economy or some other aspect of um, New Zealand's um, existing situation. So, well, that, that's clearly <laughs> one of the key aspects of uh, of the the, um, the the changes to the Act. And I was going to come back and and look at that a little bit later in uh, to give that a bit more context and and understand how clearly that that test is articulated because I think that's a key aspect to the of the changes. But for the minute, um, Savannah, I'd just like to um, ask you. One of the we're all um, familiar with the, uh, the the M&A landscape in New Zealand and understand that uh, New Zealand actually has to compete with other uh, kind of jurisdictions globally for uh, for investment. Um, so you know we need to be careful in an attitude of building a barrier because foreign investment is critical to New Zealand and and it's. Uh, uh, the ability for it to flow over our borders is important to our economy. So can you give us an understanding of how do the legislation, the, the changes to the OIA as they now stand, compare with other jurisdictions? Absolutely, Colm. And I think the key message is that New Zealand is not doing anything that is out of step with comparable jurisdictions. So when we look at Australia, at the UK, at Canada, they're all looking at the national security as a key driver it is, it is an important thing for every country. Now, we need to mitigate the risk of opportunistic increases of foreign investment, particularly in sensitive assets and industries. 
And that's what the government is trying to do with the changes in the legislation. There's no particular target. This is not about a particular country. It's actually agnostic as to the jurisdictions. And what the government is doing is trying to mitigate that risk in two ways. One, they're trying to lower the monetary thresholds for screening. And two, they're adding a new material national interest test, which is a different assessment that can be made. I do think it's really important to note that countries like Australia have gone down to a zero threshold. New Zealand is still accepting happily foreign investment. We just need to follow a certain process. And maybe the last point to note is there is also um, a number of countries in Latin America is a good example, places where COVID has hit really strongly in which they are actually not making significant changes to their overseas investment rules. That is because they see the value of getting investment in difficult times. Mm. And I think New Zealand sees that too. The, uh, it's a really important balancing act that um, sometime, somehow we need to uh, manage of understanding and protecting legitimate concerns, but at the same time uh, not creating uh, real real impediments. Martin, would be interested in, in your thoughts on that, because the legislation aims to ensure that changes in ownership through this vulnerable period are properly scrutinised and support the New Zealand economy. Will these measures, do you think they, they will support that aim? Will they, will they achieve what they're setting out to do? I mean, what they do is essentially lower the threshold so that the government has the opportunity to check any transaction that occurs essentially of any value. So it's not transactions that otherwise need consent, it's, it's transactions below the threshold currently need consent. They have the opportunity to review those. Uh, you submit a, a notice that has details of the investment and the investor and the background of the people that control that investor and the government has the opportunity to scrutinise those and in the process apply the national interest test within this COVID disruption period, focusing in particular on businesses that might be distressed and being sold in circumstances where they're in effect well below their inherent value because of the disruption caused by COVID-19. In our experience so far, uh, we're not actually encountering transactions of purchases of distressed assets, but we suspect that the potential for those sorts of transactions lies ahead as the economic impact of COVID-19 really starts to bite, the wage subsidy stops um, being available and, and you know there's a period ahead where that issue may become much more apparent. Yeah, certainly we haven't seen the a significant increase in uh, kind of distressed transactions at, at the minute, but like you say, that um, you can expect that to come in due course, I think, as the, uh, the economics kind of um, play their way through. So, Savannah, coming back to you, we've mentioned a couple of times this national interest test. It's a new test. So a critical thing will be how clearly articulated is it? And not just from a legal perspective, but investors coming in and being able to understand it. I spent uh, a very long lunch uh, kind of with a, an overseas investor recently trying to kind of explain that this wasn't a you know, kind of impenetrable wall that they were not going to be able to, uh, to surmount. You know, how, how clearly do you think the, uh, the, the test can be understood? The test is not that clearly articulated, and to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. there's no definition in the Act of what it is. However, the Minister has brought discretion and the Treasury has defended this approach. And and to be honest, I do somehow agree that the flexibility that is embedded in the regime has advantages. So the fact that we don't have a definition of national interest test means that the New Zealand interests have to be protected. That's the objective. 
but we don't have a rigid framework. Mm. We are going to be evolving, and, and, and I'm sure the regulators, the government, will need to be assessing the circumstances as the world evolves. This is not just a New Zealand problem. The, what, what is more clear is when will the national interest test apply. So there is a mandatory set of transactions um, in which the test applies and also when a foreign government is directly involved in the investment. Um, there's also a bit of discretion, so the government has the call-in powers to actually determine that a transaction that otherwise wouldn't have been subject to the screening of the regime uh, needs to get assessed. That, uh, that government ownership uh, aspect is quite interesting. Is that not defined either? Is it if there's a 1% or 3 or 5% interest somewhere from a, a government-related uh, investor, does that uh, trigger that? Or yeah, is, it, uh, is it more limited than that? Th- there is a definition. It's when the foreign government would directly acquire sensitive assets or hold a 10% or more in the oh, target. Okay. That, that's a lot more clear, yes. But the broader ability to have a test which hasn't been exactly defined, that's not particularly unusual, is it, in these in these sorts of regimes? Not at all, and especially if we go back to why is the regime being put in place. It is because of the times of uncertainty. COVID brought this, but it's probably going to have an effect even after we find a, a vaccine or something. The uncertainty in the markets is going to be here for a while. And when you look at what is actually, um, or what are the industries subject to the national interest test, at least in the headline, or what are the mandatory situations, it makes sense. They are significantly, strategically important businesses like the military, dual-use technology, ports or airports, telecommunications infrastructure, media businesses with significant impact, financial institutions and infrastructure. You can see, Colm, that those are things that the government and any government, not just the New Zealand government, but any government protecting security of their country would like to keep an eye on in times when those assets could be vulnerable because of the financial um, situation in the world. So the first impression would be that as it's laid out, it makes sense, but we'll have to wait and see how it is applied in practice. Yes, and and, and there's a a level of uncertainty that is creating for foreign investors. I'm I'm totally aware of that. But we also need to remember New Zealand, there's a rule of law here. It's Mm. a jurisdiction in which the courts operate properly, um, levels of corruption are low. So the World Bank recently named New Zealand as um, the easiest country to do business in the world in January 2020. So we should take some comfort. We welcome foreign investment and there will be a rule of law applied. Excellent. So one of the things I'd be interested now just to get everyone's perspective on is how these rules, if they were applied to the deals that we have seen historically, would they have been a serious impediment to the inflow of foreign investment? Colm, I think the reality is that they would have been subjected to a bit more scrutiny with the national interest test, particularly to the extent there was state-owned involvement in or government involvement in the underlying entity making the investment. If you look at the sectors that those investments have occurred in, particularly in the dairy sector, I would be surprised if those investments would result in uh, a block of those transactions or any specific conditions being imposed. They would still be scrutinised under that test and looked at closely, but I doubt that they would have been blocked. I think reality is that the OIO and the ministers have had a lot of discretion in the past, one way or another. So the fact that we had 17, 23 factors to take into account meant for us advisors that we could try to find a way for pretty much every investment uh, we came across and for the government to find also a way 
to say that you didn't meet the test. So we are now being a little bit more explicit about something that probably had been an elephant in the room, national security risk, and I don't think it's going to make a massive difference. But it's definitely becoming a bit of a stricter regime, I would say. But that's a really interesting perspective on it, Silvana, of uh, having these rules articulated. Now, I mean that uh, you know the elephant has been brought into the room and openly discussed. So uh, it actually brings a a degree of greater greater clarity, if you like. Hada, perhaps if I can come back to you, uh, one of the ongoing challenges and often criticisms of the regime historically has been the timing. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have the regime, it's another thing to be able to get uh, kind of approvals through and to be able to give foreign investments, investors who are deploying huge amounts of capital into New Zealand certainty as to when they will, how long the process will take and when they'll be able to deploy their money. How do you think that uh, that's going to change under under this regime? Because timing is critical with these things. Certainly. And when you sign a deal, you sign a sale and purchase agreement, and you expect that the condition, um, the OIO consent condition, should be um, obtained and satisfied within a certain time period. Otherwise, you know, the deal may fall off. Mm. So I guess the new changes or the new reform will be looking at also streamlining the approval process and make it easier and better to allow the investors to get approval. So for example, the investor test will be streamlined and will become less stringent in terms of um, the investor credentials and the acumen or experience. So, uh, Martin, just coming back to you on that uh, that timing question, um, I think there are other aspects of the uh, the timing which are also important. Yes, so I think it's important to look at these changes and not see them as just making the process for getting consent to make an investment harder. There are actually a lot of measures that are designed to streamline the process and make it clearer and more transparent and speedier. And in particular, there is now in the legislation the prospect of statutory timeframes being implemented for the processing of applications that'll be specified by regulation and is yet to be implemented. They do have, now have specified time limits for processing notifications under the emergency notification regime where the bulk of notifications will be dealt with in 10 working days with more complex notices being dealt with in 30, further 30 working days and then really complicated ones a further 30 working days, so they must be dealt with within that time frame. And then there is the prospect that full applications will have prescribed statutory time periods as well. The OIO will have the ability to extend those, but they're much shorter than what uh, the current processing times are, which is a really positive step. And will put pressure on the OIO and will require the government to resource it sufficiently to realistically be able to achieve those time frames. Well, that's certainly been one of the criticisms historically, but that sounds great. If that uh, can be implemented and seen through in practice, that really would address one of the uh, the, the very strong criticisms around the uh, timing of, of getting things through the process with a, a degree of certainty as well. Yes, yes, that's right. Just one other area that I think is also worth noting is that when the emergency notification regime ends, which you know, is likely to be once the disruption of COVID-19 stops having an effect on our market, 
there is a new ability for transactions to be called in, and those are transactions uh, at the moment with the emergency notification regime, essentially any transaction not requiring consent currently must be notified. Once that regime comes to an end, the government then will have the ability for transactions that don't otherwise require consent, it will have the ability to call them in and scrutinise them and consider whether the national interest test should be applied and the transaction blocked or uh, conditions imposed on it. I think the challenge that will raise is that investors looking to make an investment in New Zealand will have to carefully consider whether the nature of the investment they're looking to undertake is likely to trigger such a call-in um, approach and the consequence of that may be that they're better to voluntarily notify the OAO so that they have the opportunity to consider whether it will be called in and start that process before they're committed to the transaction or even worse, completed it and it has to be unwound. Understand. I think this uh, was going to start to draw to a close and you're all uh, kind of commercial lawyers, you all see a great range of transactions and behaviours of investors. The question I was going to finish with was what do you see as being the key challenges or opportunities, indeed, for attracting investment going forward in the current environment? Silvana, maybe start with you. Yeah, look, I think there's, um, there are both sides of the coin column, as you said. So the good thing is New Zealand is in a unique position. We are actually one of the few nations in the world that can claim to be COVID-free. That has to have a competitive advantage, and, and our, um, our assets, our industries are getting a lot of traction in the world because of that reason. Uh, the problem, though, and, and the challenge would be to attract new foreign investment, particularly new investors that haven't been in New Zealand before, is that our borders are still closed. So we can have face-to-face meetings. People can actually inspect assets or targets. I mean, I have a transaction at the moment in which a foreign investor is looking at things remotely um, using technology. And that sounds great, but it takes time to get used to that. Um, I think in China, people use the expression one she the the relationship it's actually hard to build it through electronic means and 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 that will be a challenge i think for our foreign investment too i mean we've we've certainly seen uh, a number of uh, kind of live transactions where you know they're just not going to complete until the borders are open and the investor is able to actually walk the site and and look people in the eye and and get comfortable uh, with the uh, with completion so heide I tend to agree with um, Silvana. As long as our border is closed, it's not very easy for us to get more foreign investment into the country. And technology can help, mm. that's for sure. We do have um, foreign investors who are looking at uh, different assets and different opportunities in terms of um, acquiring uh, businesses here through Redbacks, Zoom, and different things, they seem to be uh, getting used to it and getting to be really good at doing that. So deals are still going on, and even though it's going through ele- electronically, the challenges will be there. At the same time, because of the fact that New Zealand is um, COVID-free, then we have the we have the edge, and we will get more foreign investment into the country. So I guess um, this is um, the, the plus for us. Plus um, the rationale for bringing in all these changes to the foreign investment approval regime is not to stop foreign investment. 
And I think our government has given a very, very positive indication that foreign investment is very important to us. They will continue to support that as long as this will benefit New Zealand and also it will make sure that our national security will be uh, protected. So with these two elements guaranteed, and um, I think foreign investment will continue to come. Excellent. I always hesitate to say COVID-free. I always think of it as COVID-contained. Don't want to tempt fate. Yeah, we don't want to be too complacent. Uh, could Martin, your perspective on the, um, the, the uh, challenges and opportunities going forward? I think my sort of perspective on these changes is that on the whole, uh, they're implementing changes to make the regime in New Zealand consistent with other jurisdictions around the world. They have been proposed in circumstances where the government is saying we need to encourage investment that is good for New Zealand, but at the same time have controls to ensure that investment that isn't necessarily good for New Zealand is is either blocked or conditions imposed to protect New Zealand's interests. I do have, having worked for a long time processing or submitting applications to the OIO, I do have a view that we have struggled to get the balance right between reviewing investment into New Zealand and encouraging it. I think we've got a regime that is very complex and in some cases makes it very difficult to get consent or the likelihood of getting consent not being clear or takes a long time. So some of the initiatives in these changes to address some of those issues I think are positive and it will be interesting to see that if they actually translate into applications being more transparent and processed more quickly, I think that would be a really positive step towards encouraging investment into New Zealand. I think the effect of the emergency notification regime, uh, you know, I don't think that's significant, it's just a process, but I don't think it's actually blocking investment and I've been pleasantly surprised by how efficiently they have been processed. But going forward, we have challenges ahead with you know, while the disruption of COVID-19 is not as significant as for a lot of other countries, we still have very difficult economic times ahead for us and the opportunity for foreign investment to address some of those challenges by creating new businesses, better capitalising businesses in the process, creating jobs, that's a real uh, potential. So we've got to make sure this regime's implemented in a way that allows that to happen for the benefit of New Zealand. And Colin, maybe if I can make a, a final comment from my perspective, New Zealand is actually a country that welcomes foreign investment, as we have said before, but also a country with low levels, very low levels of corruption and a very easy country to do business in. So when you look at the challenges, um, I would say this is the moment, if you're going to be bold about making foreign investments, um, this, is, this is a great jurisdiction to do it in. Absolutely, I think that's a, uh, that's a great place to, uh, to, to wrap it up. And in summary, I think our sense is that these uh, changes that we've seen coming through in New Zealand uh, regulation of foreign investment bring us to a point which is broadly similar with analogous uh, jurisdictions, but shouldn't actually create a significant uh, impediment. The, the, the challenge is going to be seeing how they are applied in practice. The timing with which the applications clear the system will be a key, uh, key concern on that. Um, but overall, New Zealand is, uh, is open for foreign investment and, and a great place for investors to, uh, to come. 
Thanks to Colm and the Council's lawyers for that interesting discussion on an ever-evolving topic. I'm sure we'll have the lawyers back soon for another update on how investment is tracking. Please find more New Zealand China Council podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Thanks for listening. 